This is From Egmont to Taranaki by me, John Campbell. Chapter 1. Effort I have been a slow, dull student of our history. Privilege allows that. You think less about history when the present is a safe and comfortable place. It's a perverse thing when people who profit from history don't know what their profit is built upon, or choose not to know, or tell versions of history that affirm the victory but not its means, or blink before the uncomfortable, or say, move on, in the fashion of a parent frustrated by a child who won't stop crying over a small wound. Some of us do know our history, of course. Some of us live with the generational hurt. Some of us know the damage because it was done to us, or our grandparents, or our hapu, or our iwi. Some of us carry the weight in our DNA. But there are those of us who don't know, or who say, get over it. Those of us who believe history existed fixed, then ceased to exist, and all that defines us is the present. Those of us who say, snowflake, while simultaneously being reduced to toddler fury by the words, miraka krimi, on a block of chocolate, or by a TV weather presenter saying, te wai ponamu. I came from that tribe, the people who didn't know, who didn't want to, or who believed they didn't need to. And the older I get, the more I realise what a betrayal that is, of truth, of decency, of respect, of us. For reconciliation and healing to occur, Dame Tariana Turia said, for a nation to address the trauma of colonisation, quote, we must peel back layers of truth and address them. There's a story about journalism that I tell over and over. It's of one of my heroes, Martha Gellhorn, who as an elderly woman wrote, and I quote, All my reporting life I have thrown small pebbles into a very large pond and have no way of knowing whether any pebble caused the slightest ripple. I don't need to worry about that. My responsibility was the effort. I love those words, perhaps more than any other written about journalism. And I want to take them now and apply them to the knowledge of our history. Our responsibility is the effort. Chapter 2. Falling. Ko o te whenua, ko te whenua, ko o. I am the land, the land is me. To understand what it's like to lose land, to have it taken from you, to be upended from your place and to be told it isn't your place anymore, you have to see land as more than a love story. You have to see land as essential to the definition of who you are. My place in the world is a kind of driftwood uncertainty. I say Wellington, and as a child at Athletic Park with my dad, I even screamed it out loud. The back of my office chair wears a hurricane's jersey, like a honeymoon tattoo. But it doesn't feel deeply rooted. My children are Aucklanders through and through, and their stories, their connection to Tamaki Makoto, pull me to this place too. Or the Wairarapa, where my mum is. Or the North, where our children discovered space and light and learnt to swim. And in recent years, quite unexpectedly, I have fallen for Taranaki. 
It was accidental at first. My best friend Tim and I went to see the All Blacks play France in New Plymouth in 2013. And we had one of those stupidly happy weekends that create a nostalgia within hours of it being over. Then I took my family there. We did, Len Lai, walked the coastal walk, ate good food and visited Parihaka. Then Tim and I returned for a winter roadie, exploring the tiny places of the coast, driving and stopping, driving and stopping, turning west whenever we could to where the sea and land both become black sand. Tim was diagnosed with terminal cancer in 2014. After that, our travelling became precious. Off we'd go, death-defying, so very alive, full of immense gratitude, and also of the realisation that the days do not endlessly follow each other, as our youthful selves had always assumed they would. Rather, they diminish hour by hour towards the end of land and whatever is beyond it. Looking back at the photos from our Taranaki trips, it's mostly food we have paused to record. Tim and I approached food with a religious seal. Our friendship was 40 years of sublime, absurd, appalling, ridiculous meals. Almost every one of them a giggling sacrament. One photo, I don't even remember exactly where from, is of the greatest ever pie warmer, 50 shades of brown, and a pie purchased from it, steak and cheese of course, which was as delicious as the pies we ate when we wagged school. And then there's a sandwich from the White Bay Inn in Morke, so salty and buttery and good that we each had two. And then there's a pub meal from Awakino, so large we couldn't finish it, roaring with laughter as we shoveled it into a plastic bag that Tim had emptied his cancer drugs out of, sneaking it to the car so as not to look like we hadn't enjoyed it. And on it goes, joyfully, stupidly, as the best roadies do. But throughout our hours on the road, talking our friendship into infinity, the land is also there, endlessly. And the land has such weight in Taranaki, I hadn't noticed until I looked back through my phone how often I'd photographed it. Mount Taranaki, Taranaki Monga, confiscated from Māori under the New Zealand Settlements Act of 1863, quote, an act to enable the governor to establish settlements for colonisation in the Northern Island of New Zealand. Smash and grab. And there's pictures of the farms that only barely seem to render the land hospitable as if simply being endured for a while. What is their story? And why are we so shy about telling it? The way the farmland rises to cut out horizons, green then jagged, green then silhouette, green then the weather rolling in, and the stock who gather to be photographed, not knowing how treacherous people are. Some of it is inadvertently apposite. On the coast at Pangarehu, just off State Highway 45, very near Parihaka, there's a lighthouse, and on the side it says Pimlico, London, 1864. What shining progress this would have been in a colonial settlement. Safety for some. But by the end of the confiscations that began almost exactly as this Kitsit lighthouse was being shipped out from England, Taranaki Māori would have largely been rendered landless. 
Within 17 years of the date on that lighthouse, the appalling events at Parihaka would occur, and hundreds of men who had committed no crime whatsoever would have been sent away to prison as far south as Otago. Did that lighthouse shine for them? When it swung its circle of light from the sea to the land that had been taken from them, did it call them home or remind them there was no home to go to? Fascinated by the place, I started reading to learn more. And any reading on Taranaki's history leads you straight to loss. Take this, for example, from the Waitangi Tribunal's extraordinary Taranaki report, Kopapa Tuatahi. Taranaki Māori were dispossessed of their land, leadership, means of livelihood, personal freedom, and social structure and values, end quote. Then consider the incendiary ignorance of the opening sentence on the Hobson's Pledge homepage. Quote, New Zealand is a great nation built on the foundation that all of us will be assured the same rights before the law. End quote. Who would say that if they know our history? Who would say that if they know the New Zealand Settlements Act of 1863? Who would say that if they had read the speeches Dame Tariana Turia gave as Associate Minister of Māori Affairs on the subject of colonisation and trauma and the Māori she describes who, and I quote, wake up each morning unemployed, gazing out at land once owned by their ancestors, land now owned and leased by others who generate wealth of it. There were winners and losers then and there are winners and losers today. End quote. Who would say that if they know the evidence given to the Waitangi Tribunal by Peter Moyahu in 1990? Quote, when I look at a map of Taranaki and trace the confiscation line, it is an arrow piercing the heart of my people. Chapter 3. The Weight of the Plough On an evening in July, during which a cold wind dragged clouds from the south and the sky tumbled with disorder, cameraman Will Green and I went to meet Dini Moyahu at Mururopatu Marai on Century Hill, roughly halfway between New Plymouth and Waitara. Dini Moyahu is Peter Moyahu's son. The arrow keeps piercing generation after generation, heart after heart after heart. In Taranaki, history has the sound of colonial place names. Century Hill, Bell Block, Egmont, the latter named after a man who never went there by a man who was sailing past. Taranaki has the face of the land and of Dini himself and of his great-great-grandfather, Tamate Whanganui, whose photo is on the wall through the door Dini is standing beside, inside, in the warm, warm light. Tamati, Dini told us, had been imprisoned without trial and sent off to Otago. Tamati, hundreds of other men, all of them Māori. During 1865, Kopapa Tuatahi, the Waitangi Tribunal's Taranaki report says, some 1.199 million acres of Taranaki were confiscated. Almost 1.2 million acres in a single year, brazenly, openly taken like a giant ram raid. The response to that raupatu, confiscation, still seems extraordinary. 
the men whose land had been taken from them began to plough it, man after man, plough after plough, acre after acre. The ploughing began at Oakuda on the 25th of May 1879 with 20 persons and five ploughs, Kopapa Tuatahi tells us. It spread to Hawara and finally throughout Taranaki. With hindsight, the report says, the government was faced with widespread, organised and disciplined, passive resistance. When I first read Kopapa Tuatahi, I found it heartbreaking. Our history, our widespread ignorance of it, our shame, our lack of shame. Some of it is almost poetic. Some of it is almost rageful. Some of it has the strange clinical calm of a cancer diagnosis. Quote, the history of Taranaki is not a set of unconnected incidents, but a record of continued denial and repression. The manner in which land was taken, the way in which the so-called purchases were affected, I'm quoting here, the human rights abuses, including imprisonments without trial, the injury sustained, the continued denial of rights over generations, still quoting, the resultant state of race relations and the bitterness to be ameliorated, cultural marginalisation and demographic dispersal, and on it goes, hurt after hurt after hurt. And against all of that, the ploughmen went out. Quote again, They disdained all threats that they and their horses would be shot, and they gave no resistance when surrounded. As the ploughmen were arrested, others took their place, until over 400 Taranaki ploughmen swelled the jails of Dunedin, Littleton, Hokitika, and Mount Cook in Wellington. Off they were sent, Tamati Whanganui, and so many other Māori men. Almost a century and a half later, Dini looks up at the photo of his great-great-grandfather on the wall at Muriraupatu and tells me, when you are part of lived history, where you see the continuing dispossession and disenfranchisement, it takes a lot to work through that. I have been a slow, dull student but the more I learn of our history, the more I understand that working through it, as Dinny says, requires us all to look up at the photos, to know their names, to know their stories. To not know these stories, to treat them separately, to assign them to the margins of what we sometimes refer to as Māori, by which we mean over there, by which we, Pākehā, mean not relevant to anyone else or not our problem, is to endlessly repeat the way colonisation insists its victims carry its weight. The weight of surviving, the weight of overcoming, the weight of memory, the weight of the plough. Chapter 4. Learning This is a true story from my childhood, distantly remembered. Sometime in the early 1980s, I attended a sort of human rights conference for youth somewhere north of Wellington. Or Taki, I'm not sure. I was in my final year at school or my first year at university as unworldly as a pre-fame Osmond. I met a girl as intense as me and we were idealistic, ridiculous and awkward together, although I would have been more ridiculous and awkward. And one of the sessions was a small, I think, group of Māori who talked to us about colonisation. They were kind and patient and compelling. 
But they also had an anger I found new and utterly arresting. Is arresting the right word? Was it a revelation? Was it doors being opened? Or was it just my cosseted, privileged, monocultural childhood breaking down on the side of the road north? For the first time in my life, I realised I did not know our history. I had not faced our history, to paraphrase Moana Jackson, and that my unconsciousness was both a manifestation of colonisation and a continuation of it. If you do not know, it doesn't excuse you. It just makes you ignorant as well as complicit. Our responsibility is the effort. Chapter 5. Squatting. Did I mention I have been a slow, dull student? In Kaupapa Tuatahi, there's a sentence that shocks me every time I read it and that speaks to and from the broken heart of our history. In Taranaki, the Waitangi Tribunal tells us, many hapu were left with nothing of their own to live on and became squatters on crown land. End quote. Squatters on crown land that had in fact been Maori land before it was taken. And the thing is, we knew it was wrong even then. In the Taranaki question, an actual protest pamphlet from 1861, Sir William Martin, the first Chief Justice of New Zealand, spoke up against the Crown's unlawful behaviour. No right of a British subject, Sir William wrote, is more clear or more precious than this that the executive government shall not use the force at its command to oust any man from his land. Sir William was responding to the confiscations, which he saw as a violation of Article 3 of the Treaty of Waitangi, with its promise, and I quote, to the natives of New Zealand that they would have, and again I quote, the rights and privileges of British subjects. We, the English subjects of the Queen, he wrote, dislike nothing so much as being intimidated into the relinquishment of a right. Why should a Maori dislike it less? And then, in this remarkable piece of writing, he assesses the land confiscations and asks, quote, Was it lawful for the government, under the circumstances, to take possession of the land by armed force? There can be only one answer. It was not lawful. It was not lawful. One law, except when it had to be broken for the benefits of the colonisers. Still, hands up who's more concerned about the words miraka creamy on a chocolate bar. Every time I stumble upon the one-people vacuousness of Hobson's choice and their dull ilk, history is never mind paternalism with the depth of a milk arrowroot dunked in a cup of tea, I think of what happened in Taranaki and of my own long journey to begin to understand it. I think of what Kopapa Tuatahi describes as the generational distortion of physical and spiritual well-being and the flow-on effects on subsequent standards of living, end quote. I think of how aspects of Raupatu were, quote, arranged as to inflict the pain of the past on every generation of their people, end quote. And I think of how some of us still don't truly understand that. 
For decades, Kopapa Tuatahi tells us, and I quote, this shameful history lay largely buried in obscurity. Young Māori were schooled to believe that those of their forebears whose images they should have carved with pride were simply rebels, savages or fanatics. The government's criminality was hidden. The last time I was in Taranaki, I was working on a story about Chaos Price. Chaos, who was 22 and had fallen through the cracks of his own potential, landing in a wasteland of wild, reckless criminality. Chaos, whose own grandmother described him as a little shit. Chaos, who was shot dead by New Zealand police on the road between New Plymouth and Waitara on Century Hill not far from Bellblock, where so many lives were lost in the colonisation wars. Chaos Price was the fifth man shot dead by police in Taranaki so far this century, and four of them have been Māori. I will not repeat that story here, although I do want to quickly repeat something from it. And it's what Chris Finlayson, then Treaty Negotiations Minister, said at Parihaka in 2017, and I quote... The Crown took the rich lands of Taranaki and left its people impoverished, demoralised and vilified. Impoverished, demoralised and vilified. I have no mercy in me, Malcolm X said, for a society that will crush people and then penalise them for not being able to stand up under the weight. That's us on our baddest days. And here's the lose-lose paradox. If Māori flounder, it's get over it, get on with it. And if Māori identity starts to flourish, even in the simplest ways, even with place names on a weather map, it's treated as an act of rebellion against the idea of one people. Sir William Martin addressed this in that long and passionate by the standards of the time paper called The Taranaki Question, presented to Parliament in 1864. By this time, the New Zealand Settlements Act had given the Crown the right to confiscate land from any native tribe or section of a tribe or any considerable number thereof engaged in rebellion against Her Majesty's authority. The determination of rebellion was the Crown's to make. Ploughing was rebellion. Removing surveying pegs was rebellion. Refusing to leave land and home was rebellion. And of this, Sir William wrote that Māori, and I quote, seeing their territory entered by an armed force and property destroyed by that force, end quote, had every right to resist. What else would anyone do? And then he wrote 27 of the sanest words written by any Pākehā during that lightless period of colonisation. Quote, Ought we not, in fairness, to conclude that they resisted not because they were traitors, but rather because they were New Zealanders or because they were men. Chapter 6. Tim. Tim and I met in 1981. He died on Boxing Day 2021. For 40 years, we had the kind of friendship that felt like an impossibly long winning streak. Bingo! Day after day after day. We were stupid. We talked shit. We ate too many pies. I was best man at his wedding. He was best man at mine. 
When we were young, he stole my girlfriend's bastard. As we got older, my family adored him. We travelled. We laughed and laughed and laughed. And also, and our flawed and limited understanding of this initially reflected our ignorance of everything. Tim was Māori. What percentage Māori? We all asked him back when people were part, or an eighth, or a quantum that made them less Māori than something else, and therefore not really Māori at all. How Māori are you? Our ignorance was about as big as ignorance can be. Tim had a second cousin, Pitipi Walker, a remarkable man, way ahead of his time in the crippling narrowness of our Wellington homogeneity, a writer, educator, and a pioneering Māori language broadcaster. And we wondered, why was he Pitipi when Philip would do? And here's the thing, we didn't know better. And here's the thing, something approaching 40 years ago, we were the people who said, that's not miraka creamy, it's creamy milk chocolate. Thinking Philip was preferable to Pitipi, being bewildered as to why he might want to be Pitipi, this came from a place of received supremacy, from an absence of curiosity and wonder, from complacency, from all the things we weren't taught about our history and ourselves, and from the way colonisation insists the best thing you can do with your pre-colonised identity is to abandon it, or betray it, or trade up. Our ignorance was like a mountain. And then Tim began to understand. He was Nati Raukawa and Nati Toa, and he could trace his whakapapa, and he gently evolved into a broader sense of himself and into pride. Chapter 7 Waitara How many of us have been to Waitara? It's so easy to avoid. 15 minutes north of the brighter lights of New Plymouth, you have to deliberately turn west off State Highway 3 when the traffic's bustling momentum is urging you not to. And even when you think, I am going to Waitara, emphatically, capitalised, underlined, it feels kind of shy about itself, as if it worries life is elsewhere. And you circle in, then out like somebody changing their mind just before they ask someone to dance. But when Puna Wano Bryant says, come and see me in Waitara, you go. In fact, cameraman Will Green and I went twice. The first time was a grey weekday afternoon to record an interview with Puna, which we shot at Tawa, the river church on McLean Street, because they've decolonize the scriptures which matters to Puna and their website says we believe in healing and reconciliation for Waitara and that matters to Puna too. Puna Wano Bryan is a proud descendant of Taranaki Iwi, as she puts it, Te Ati Awa, Nati Mutunga, and Nati Awa, 
She holds an LLB and a BA, Te Reo Māori, film and television, and she spends much of her life trying to respond to the hopelessness and despair of colonisation by telling the truth about what happened, hopeful that if enough of us hear the truth, we'll respond in a way that heals. Puna was chair of the Parihaka Papakainga Trust during its negotiation and reconciliation process with the Crown, which led in part to the apology at Parihaka from Treaty Negotiations Minister Christopher Finlayson that we heard earlier. The Crown took the rich lands of Taranaki and left its people impoverished, demoralised and vilified. That one. Truth, understanding and apology, reconciliation. We're filming the Chaos Price story, and we've come to Sipuna to try to understand why five men, four of them Māori, have been shot dead by police in Taranaki, entire regional population, just 125,000, in the past 22 years. What's going wrong? And how do we fix it? Puna looks beyond us, to the doors. The street that we're on is McLean Street, she says. My house is at Blake Street, and then she lists them, the streets in Waitara named after colonisers, McLean, Blake, Grey, Gold, Brown, Stafford. If you think this doesn't matter, then please don't be someone offended by two Māori words on a chocolate wrapper. History explains the weight of this. Through the 1840s and 1850s, land was being purchased throughout Taranaki from people without due authority to sell it, or in ways utterly contrary to the communal nature of Māori ownership or tenure, and often for way less money than the land was worth, and for occupancy by many more settlers. So flawed, so opportunistic, so unregulated, so cynical was this purchase process that the Taranaki report, Kopapa Tuatahi, reaches the striking conclusion that, and I quote, none of the acquisitions of land in North Taranaki can be seen as having been acquired consistently with the treaty. None. And then there's a sentence that tells us so much about how the coloniser frames the colonised. And again, I quote, Māori were simply coarse or hostile unless they were disposed to sell, in which case they were friendly. By 1859, Wiramu Kingi Terangitake, after whom no streets in Waitara are named, wasn't feeling friendly at all. He'd had a gutsful. Born in Manukorihi Pa, near Waitara, Wiramukingi was a Tiatiawa chief who refused to sell tribal land at Waitara. In early 1859, Thomas Gore Brown, after whom a street in Waitara is named, who had replaced George Grey, after whom a street in Waitara is named, as Governor of New Zealand, received a letter from Wiramukingi telling him, and I quote, I will not agree to our bedroom being sold. I mean Waitara here. For this bed belongs to us all, and do not you be in haste to give the money. If you give the money secretly, you will get no land for it. End quote. But Te Tera Manuka, another Te Atiawa chief, without tribal mandate, without individual ownership, without title, did offer to sell a block of land. Kopapa Tuatahi describes what happened next. The governor directed the survey of Tera's peace as though it was legitimately severable. 
Taylor's piece was a figment of the imagination. It was impossible to cut out, I'm still quoting here, by so gravely misinterpreting Māori law and Kingi's determination to uphold it, the governor was expediting the crisis, end quote. The crisis became war. On March 4th, Governor Brown instructed Lieutenant Colonel Charles Gold, after whom a street, you guessed it, in Waitara is named, to occupy the land. Again, Kaupapa Tuatahi tells us what happened next. I quote, On the 17th of March, 1859, Gold marched his troops to Te Kohia Pa and demanded that Kingi and his people surrender. When they refused to do so, the troops opened fire. End quote. 163 years later, Puna Wano Bryant looks out the door to the streets of Waitara, some named after men involved in what Kaupapa Tuatahi calls that unlawful attack, others named after men responsible for the land confiscations, almost 1.2 million acres taken, and tells me what it means to live amongst their names. Listen. What are those messages that those street names are telling our young people, our rangata'i? Like Chaos, like Stephen, like the five young men who are of this place. What are, what are those symbols telling them? What are they telling them? That they don't exist. That their Māori tanga does not exist. The identity as te Atiawa people of this place doesn't exist. And and even if, even if you, you think you're proud because you, you play league for Waitara, or Clif rugby for Clifton, that actually you're worthless. We've wiped your identity off the land, we've taken the land underneath it, and you have no right to put your symbols up on the land. And so we reflect what the world tells us. If the world tells us we don't belong and we don't exist, then we behave accordingly. And, and so that's the the mamai that you see walking around these streets every day. And it's a blessing to live at home in Waitara, on my whenua, um, but it's also a burden because you see the pain in our young ones walking around. Puna Wano Bryant in Waitara. Sometimes I read the comments when Taro Hillinger Brown does the weather on the One News 6 pm broadcast. It's important to acknowledge, as some of the reporting has not, that the vast majority of the comments are positive. Some people are proud, others delighted by her virtuosity, the remarkable ability shared by many of my Māori colleagues to weave back and forth between languages, even within the same sentence. But some of the comments are vile and they hold to a mean narrowness. If Te Rauheringa says Te Waiponamu instead of the South Island, while standing next to a map of the South Island, repeating the same country's weather in the same geographic order as it's occurred for decades, in what way does that exclude anyone other than those determined to be excluded? Now... Imagine if that land or part of it had been your place in the world, Ko'o te whenua, ko te whenua, ko'o. I am the land, the land is me. Or your hapus, or your iwis, your tūranga waiwai, 
and it had been taken from you by force or a unilateral and treaty-breaching process of legislation or by unfair and opportunistic purchasing, and you were asked to live with the names of the people who did that, how would you feel? As if you don't belong, as Puna said? Dispossessed and disenfranchised, as Dinny said? Like your heart was pierced, as Peter said? It's evening now. Will is filming Puna and I am learning, learning. The whole history of government dealings with Māori of Taranaki has been the antithesis to that envisaged by the Treaty of Waitangi, Kopapa Tuatahi tells us. While time can soften hurt, the hurt in Taranaki has not been allowed to mend, that great report says. Do enough of us know that? Did I? I have been a slow, dull student. And what of the people whose colonised lives these have been, who have lived poorer, who have died younger, who were more likely to leave school early and end up in prison, and who see Pākehā getting incensed about two Māori words on a chocolate wrapper? Kopapa Tuatahi tells us the human toll. I quote, With deep emotion and hurt, older Māori recall the drunkenness and despair that followed the land loss, and they recall the people's degradation. End quote. Seagulls, Puna One O'Brien says, that's what Tohu and Te Fiti used to call our people. Seagulls. Te Fiti O Rongomai and Tohu Kākahi, after whom no streets in Waitara are named, who established and led the pacifist community at Parihaka and whose peaceful opposition to Raupatu in the face of terrible and violent provocation is one of the most remarkable stories in our history. Why did they call their people seagulls? Because we're landless, Puna tells me. You know what it's like when the seagulls are on a rock and the waves crash against the rock and they all take off and then they're looking for another place to land. They need a safe space to land, said Puna. Later, when we finish the interview, we head down to the beach at Waitara. Will is filming Puna and I am talking to her dad. There are seagulls, almost as if they know their role in this part of the story, swooping in as if searching for something down towards us, barking that strange cry, then up in the cold wind, up, up away from the land. The next morning early, we go to visit Puna and her whanau at home. There are three children there, all bilingual, all highly articulate in both te reo Māori and English. I feel admiration, pride and envy, as I always do. I think back to Wellington College, where I studied French and Latin, and did miserably at both, and wish I'd been better equipped by my education to participate in this world. But no excuses any longer. My responsibility is the effort. Puna tells us we can do this if we try. She says our focus and attention needs to come back to those who are the most disconnected, And it's hard. We try in the iwi space to connect to those who are lost, 
who are walking the streets and who see all the coolie we stuff going on, but just don't see themselves in it. So we've got to meet them where they are. Unbreak the broken. Yes, Bonner, yes. Our responsibility is the effort. Once, out of nowhere, my daughter said to me, Dad, a candle that lights another candle doesn't go out. Did she mean that by lighting another candle your flame burns on after you're gone? Or did she mean that lighting another candle doesn't diminish your flame, it just creates more light? Both interpretations speak to the best we can be. I think of that as Will and I pack up the camera gear and head from Waitara to the airport. I think of Tim, my beautiful best friend, and all we saw and learnt together. I think of my own journey still unfolding from ignorance to the beginning of a belated understanding. I think of Punas whanau, and of Tim and Catherine's daughter, and of my children and all our rangapahi, and the country they're growing up in. I think of chaos and how his life ended right here in Taranaki, aged just 22, a seagull who could never quite land, and Parihaka, and the ploughman, and Dinny and his dad, and the hurt that runs through generations. And I think of how all our candles can burn if only we make the effort to let them. Mm-hmm.